You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Okay, well, I'm so pleased to be able to speak to you today. It's a shame I couldn't do it in person, but I'm hoping to get down to Tampa at some point in the future to speak to you. So thanks for joining me this morning. Andrew, thanks so much for this opportunity. Even though we're doing this distance, this is a great opportunity for us. And I I really appreciate talking with you and in your audience today. Absolutely. So just tell us a little bit more about yourself, Ike, because you've got quite an interesting job and you've had (laughs) quite an interesting backstory. But just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and and the organization that you're heading up. Sure. Andrew, this is going to probably be the hardest question I answer today. (laughs) My name is Ike Wilson. I have the great pleasure and honor of currently serving as the president of the Joint Special Operations University. We are the education activity that serves United States Special Operations Command. We're headquartered here uh, about 500 meters uh, approximate to the command headquarters at McDill Air Force Base, Tampa, Florida, and work directly for the commanding general of United States Special Operations Command, currently uh, General Rich Clark. General Clark is the commander of, again, U.S. SOCOM, which represents over 70,000 soft leader operators. We like to call them soft professionals. The traditional, as everyone has in their mind, the traditional operator, special operations force operator, but also soft professional encompasses all of what we've previously called those that enable soft operations. We're all soft professionals now. We're all leader operators now. That includes all of the civilian staff and uh, personnel that, that support operations. A little bit about myself. I'm an old army guy, 28 years of active <laughs> duty graduated from West Point a long, long time ago, back in 1989, in 28 years of active service, originally an Apache pilot, combat aviator, about the first 11 years of my professional career, had some great opportunities, some rare opportunities to get picked up for advanced civil schooling. Early in my career, went to graduate school, fully funded, followed on by a couple of teaching assignments at the United States Military Academy at West Point. And from there, Transition into what was at the time a new one of the new breakout functional areas, uh, what's called Functional Area 59, which is Army Strategist. And so for the remainder of my time in uniform, 
I hopscotch kind of had the wonderful opportunity to play the role of for those of your audience old enough to remember the old films, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I kind of had the wonderful opportunity to live a Indiana Jones life as an active duty military officer. Half my time when I was not in the classroom through professorate roles and responsibilities, if I wasn't in the classroom, I was out with the operational force, advising, planning, et cetera. I've got a School of Advanced Military Studies background, the SAMS program, several tours of combat duty, two in Iraq, a stint in Afghanistan. Prior to that, some time in the Balkans when I was still an, an aviator and when I was a soldier once and young. Retired in 2017, coming out of my last operational assignment where I was the director of the Commander's Initiatives Group, or the SIG, for uh, then General Lloyd Austin, who was the commander at the time. Retired out of there in 2017. Did some other interesting national security and defense work, and then went to the War College, where I helped the Army War College reinstitute and reconstitute the press there, the U.S. Army War College Press, and our Army's think tank, the Strategic Studies Institute. Did that for just under two years, and then got the offer I could not refuse from General Clark to come here to JSAL to join this fantastic team and take the helm for a change initiative that I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that we call uh, JSAL Next. And there's so much there that I want to unpack. One of the things that I love about our podcast is that it ranges from people that are working the issues that we're discussing through to someone that just loves a good spy story, <laughs> uh, a good intelligence story. Wonderful. So I just want to break some of that down for some of our listeners. Special operations, can you just break that down for us? Because I think that people like me from overseas, sometimes it can get a bit confusing, special operations and special forces, but yes. special forces in the American context refers to a specific unit within special operations. So just help our listeners understand that kind of acronym soup of SOF and SF and so forth. Just help them understand it. That's terrific. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. Let me start with a big rubric, right? We'll start with a big umbrella and then we'll go down to specifics. Yeah, I might use a different metaphor. I might call it, we'll talk about the Confederated Tribe, which is Special Operations Forces or SOF. So when, when you hear reference to SOF, Special Operations Forces, we're really talking about a Confederated Tribe, a joint which means multi-service, Confederation of Service Component Special Operations Forces. So the Army as a service has special operations forces. That's where you hear mention of special forces. Those are the Green Beret. They're also known as Green Beret. But all the other services have what we call soft service component. I'll call those sub-tribes to keep with the metaphor. And so you've got our, our naval special warfare operators, you know, which include what's probably most familiar to the majority of your general audience, the, the SEALs but additional units as well that make up Naval Special Warfare. We have MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command, and the Marine Raiders. That's the Special Operations Force component of the United States Marine Corps. You have Air Commandos, which represent the soft componency, that sub-tribe of the Confederation representing and coming from the United States Air Force. And then, of course, we've mentioned Special Forces representing the Army, USASOC, United States Army, Army Special Operations Command. I'll get hammered if, I, if I've unintendedly <laughs> left anyone out. But I, I don't think want you to I get have, in trouble. <laughs> I think I've covered all of us. So the, most, most of the time you see and hear the conflation between SF and, and SOF. So really, ultimately, it's to eliminate some of the confusion. SF, Green Berets, represents Army SOF. 
right? And soft is the overarching umbrella term that really speaks to all of us together. From a United States Special Operations Force perspective, we call that joint soft, unified services all in combination. And of course, our U.S. soft lead and represent a global-wide constellation of allies and partner nations where we work with and through and sometimes by our allies and partners. And particularly for the Joint Special Operations University, our mandate and mission for educating special operations forces, leader preparation and leader development, we have a robust mission that support education and training to our allies and partners as well. Thank you. Just to clarify then, so Special Operations Forces, it cuts across the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, but within each of those different services, there's particular Special Operations Forces. And to use the example of the Army, within the Army, you have the Special Forces, which is the Green Berets, but you also right. have what's known as Delta, and right. they are also Special Operations Forces, but they're not Special Forces, right? They are special operations forces, and when they are affiliated with the Army service componency, they are also special forces in the Army componency context. You have our PSYOPs officers, you have our military information support operations or MISO officers, just to name an additional two. Also, civil affairs fall into the special forces rubric, meaning Army special operations forces. Does that make sense? It does. And just to clarify for our listeners as well, units like the 101st Airborne, they're not Special Operations Forces, right? The 101st Airborne Division, which I have a great affinity for, I had an opportunity to serve there as their chief planner under then General Petraeus, again, years and years ago. <laughs> they are part of our what we call the General Purpose Force. They are conventional, the conventional service. They mm. represent the conventional side of the Army. And one of the things that we do at the Spy Museum is look at some of the links between popular culture and what happens in the real world. So I wonder if you could just play along with me for a minute. Let's, oh, boy. <laughs> let, just, for, just for our listeners, let's try to help them hang their hats on each of these units. So I'm going to start <laughs> off with Saving Private Ryan. That's the Rangers, Robert De Niro and the Deer Hunter, Marlon Brando and Apocalypse Now. Yes. John Rambo and the Rambo movies, they're all Green Berets. Help us understand. Right, I, I would say you, you, can't, you can't leave out John Wayne there in the, in the classic film, The Green Beret, right? <laughs> Absolutely, from the 1960s. Can you think of any other movies like Delta Force, The Seals, um, some of the other ones, just so our listeners can maybe... Black Hawk Down. There's a film going back to the 1980s, really showing my age here, Navy Seals. That was, a, you know, I think, Charlie Sheen, a young Charlie Sheen, played in, in that film. I don't want to denigrate the film too much, but I don't think it was really highly regarded at the time, so probably no one's claiming that. Or of course, more recently, you have uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which is really, a, in my opinion, a great film that captures the 10-year quest and hunt for Osama bin Laden, really spotlighting in that film our Navy SEALs. And for Black Hawk Down, just to quickly pick up on that, that's Delta Force, right? You had a combination of forces there. You had U.S. Army Rangers. You had Delta Force represented in that constellation. There were Navy SEALs involved in that operation, as well as what we call, again, general purpose forces present from the conventional side of the armed services. That's great. I think we've done a, I think we've done a pretty good job there. You know, you got Captain Phillips. You know, you got me on the film thing now, right? So the Tom Hanks film a few years back. 
Captain Phillips. That spotlighted some of our Navy SEAL special operators as well. We've been quite popular over the last 20 years, particularly in a Hollywood film. And the Night Stalkers, are they special operations forces? They sure are. They are, as an aviator myself, though not a Night Stalker, hold them quite dear to my heart. That's the 160th Night Stalkers. They are Army special operations. Okay. And how many units are there within SOF as a whole? I'll answer differently. Instead of answering in terms of units, total units, our composition is just over 70,000 complement of leader operators. And again, those SOF professionals, and that includes the civilian leadership and support staff. Global mission, trans-regional orientation. We're going to, going to move on in a second, but I just no, no I just want to lay all the foundations out for our listeners. So Special Operations Forces, this comes out of Operation Eagle Claw, the attempt to rescue the hostages in the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979-1980, that's right? Yes, Special Operations Command. United States Special Operations Command, which is a hybrid command. It's Again, when you're talking about special operations... Important for all of us as, you know, listeners and participants to think about different. When you think special, special means different when it comes to special operations forces and our missions. Different in addition to and different from what our general purpose force and conventional forces, the kind of missions that they perform. Our missions tend to be, again, special and tend to be characterized as, frankly, high risk in many situations relatively speaking, low probability of, frankly, low probability of success, high risk, requiring soft, unique, and soft, peculiar tactics, techniques, procedures, tradecraft, and last but certainly not least, peculiar materiel, technical and technological support, what we call technological enablers. Special Operations Command, they're they're responsible for Special Operations Forces? Yes, we are the overarching command for that 70,000 plus complement of SOP professionals, global mission, trans-regional orientation. And 34 years ago, United States Special Operations Command was formally enacted as a hybrid organization. We, we are part combatant command, right? And so General Clark, the commander of United States Special Operations Command is a combatant command, and we call him a, a functional combatant command because he has a, a global-wide mission that is not focused on a, a particular geographic area of responsibility and area of interest. His responsibilities are global, obviously. So a combatant command for employment of special operations forces worldwide. But we also have the additional responsibility of being service-like. That speaks to like the Army as a service, like the Navy or the Marine Corps, the Air Force as a service. General Clark is also responsible for the manning, training, and equipping, the leader education and development of that force. So we talk about man, train, equip, and we typically use the term utility, service provider of the force. And then when we talk about employ the force, you'll typically hear mention of the word use. Right. Use of soft speaks to employment of the force. Utility of soft really speaks to that service provision, how you man, how you train, how you equip that force for a complement, a wide complement of different mission sets. And that's where the Joint Special Operations University comes in, your unit that helps in the training and the education of those 70,000 people. 
That's exactly right. Our responsibility, we are direct reporting education activity to the commanding general and to the SOCOM command. And so we service through the SOCOM headquarters all of those service soft components that we talked about, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine. We are right now working with our newest partner on the block, United States Space Command. And so we're working with them in the development of a special operations competency of Space Command. So they're, okay. they're going to be new to the Confederated tribe, if you will. So our responsibility is the education, advising in the conduct of the education of that force, as well as the leader preparation and the leader development. Leader preparation, really speaking to our, our education support to commanders and senior enlisted leaders of those units, of those formations in the field of practice. And just before we, we move on to focusing on JSO, what happens, help listeners understand like the chain of command. So General Clark, how does that work? Who does he report to? Or what if he says, I'm going to go and do this, and then the top general in the army is like, well, not with my special operations people, you're not. How are those boundaries and lanes worked out? Without getting too much in my boss's lane sure. and getting myself <laughs> in trouble, right? I'll just keep it very clean and simple. General Clark, his direct report is to the Secretary of Defense through and with the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, uh, or ASD SOLIC. That's a, an advisory relationship and an oversighting, civilian oversight relationship. But in terms of a direct military chain of command, it's General Clark straight to Secretary of Defense, particularly from his combatant commander roles and responsibilities. You, of course, have the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, not formally in the chain of command, political advisor, chief military political advisor to the National Command Authority, and of course, a tight advisory relationship between all combatant commanders with the chairman and with the Secretary of Defense. Okay. Thank you so much. I think this has been really helpful. Let's zero in on JSO now. Tell us what you're all about the types of things that you do. I've had a look at your course catalog. There's some oh, fantastic great. ones there, but help our listeners understand what kind of things you're up to. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so this is this is fantastic because I get to strike some pride in our great team here. The Joint Special Operations University, we are 21 years old this year. Our anniversaries tend to match with what we're having great retrospective of today, the, the attacks of 9-11. We were born in the year 2000, about eight months prior to the attacks of 9-11. There was always education and training for special operations forces since the beginning of special operations, going back to, frankly, the colonial periods in, in our own colonial America. But in the year 2000, it was recognized in largely in response and reaction to a lot of the major changes in global geopolitical security environment, national interests, much more growing, complicated, and compounded world that we're living in that we needed to, we did a little more organizational structure to how we approach, again, the education, leader preparation, leader development of the special operations force with this global presence in, in worldwide mission. So the last 20 years, as you can imagine, born to do that education, leader prep, and leader development, but about eight months later, that really taking on, just like everything else in our nation, the particular context of what we came to call the global war on terror, with a hyper-focus, not a sole focus, but a hyper-understandable hyper-focus on counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, particular variants of it with population-centric counterinsurgency, 
special reconnaissance and support in what probably your audience is most familiar with, what we call DA or direct action in crisis response. I just mentioned four or five of a 12 classic mission set that really defines the service identities that add up and, and define the identity of U.S. special operations. Last 20 years, we've been really focused on those four or five areas in terms of what we educate, how we educate it, how we support the, the commanders and senior enlisted leaders in the field for training the leader operator force for those missions. 9-11 was, if we think about it, a threshold crossing, right? A watershed moment, and that really defined the last 20 years. We are at another watershed moment today, right? And frankly, that watershed moment probably started taking place five upwards of eight years ago. But we are clearly into it. You know, mile markers that show us an end of a particular age of things and the beginning of a new, we're experiencing right now, the last month of our end of our military presence in Afghanistan. Really, an epilogue is prologue to the next. What does that mean for um, SOS University, Special Operations Forces University, the JSAO? It means that because the world is at a strategic inflection point, our nation is at this watershed threshold crossing. Therefore, all that serve and service our nation's interests to include Special Operations Command and Special Operations Forces are at that same threshold crossing. The demanding of a reconsideration of who we are based on what we do traditionally and what we must now do going into this new threshold crossing, this new world in front of us, I'll, I'll call it an extraordinary world that lies ahead of us, uh, ripe with a lot of strategic ambiguity trying to figure out what the requirements of the world in front of us requires for us to continue to serve our nation in the accomplishment of our national interest. So that means that if special operations forces, the vanguard force for the nation's achievement of the nation's interest is at this reflective point, reconsidering who we are and who we've been in the past, who we have been now and currently, and who and what we need to become going forward, then the university has to be at that same threshold. In fact, we have to be in front of anticipating and foresighting, even forecasting some of those changes so that we can begin to recalibrate what we educate and how we educate the force, how we support through education, the training of the force in tradecraft, applications of emergent fourth technological revolution, emergent technology, AI, machine learning, all those things, how we incorporate that into the soft professionals activities. That's what JSAL Next is all about. It's a, it's a process of evolutionary change in what we teach, how we teach it, and for what purposes. Just when you were talking about it at the beginning there, is there a particular figure or, or unit that is seen as the founding father of American counterintelligence, John Jay? There's the first spy master, George Washington. Is there <laughs> an original, like an OG kind of uh, special forces unit? Would that be Rogers Rangers or are they kind of not really discussed because he was a loyalist? Help me understand the history. <laughs> we, you know, what I love about the long heritage of United States Special Operations Forces is really pegged off of personalities, individuals and personalities. And you named some of the of the iconic few going back to our colonial period. What we've been doing here, and we have several months long, in, in some cases over a year long, deep dives in the history of Special Operations Forces. Again, trying to figure out who we must be for nation, not ourselves going forward, requires a retrospective, a remembrance of who we've been in the past in a reckoning 
with some of that past, the good, bad, and ugly of it, so that we can use that as a baseline for springboarding into evolving sauce identity forward. Again, I'll emphasize for nation, not self, right? So we've started, we go back, there's a long, rich history, but we go back to what we call the first organizational age of SOF. That traces back to the World War II period. And so talking about personalities, when you talk about SOF's first age, it traces back to World War II and frankly to the Office of Strategic Services or OSS that was led by Major General William Wild Bill Donovan. Wild Bill Donovan, as you well know, is one of those <laughs> iconic figures and not only for special operations forces, but for the intelligence community as well. The OSS envisioned a military cadre at the time with the capacity to merge intelligence and operational activities, right? They were forward deployed in the operational environment with a unique ability to understand and influence both the psychological and the social settings in which uncertainty normally prevails. That was the first age of special operations forces. And interestingly enough, that first organizational age was an age of soft plus the intelligence community. So soft plus IC. And while Bill Donovan is the iconic figure, at least from the soft side of the house. We've actually got a pair of his boots in our exhibits. Fantastic. <laughs> I look forward to seeing those when yeah, I come, come up and visit. The next time you're in the DMV, Absolutely. Come, and, come and see them. That segues nicely, actually, into one of the main reasons why we're talking that link, that genealogy between intelligence and special operations. So you mentioned General Wellbill Donovan, but after that, there's a, there's a bifurcation, right? The special operations stay within the army and then intelligence goes into the more civilian side. Help us understand that evolution up to now. Help us understand a little bit of that history. Walk us, walk us back from the days of Wellbill Donovan up until the, the present day. To me, it's almost like the two strands of DNA, like a double helix. They've, yeah. they've kind of came apart for a bit and then they've crossed over more closely and help us understand the evolution of that and where they are now. I walked us through that first age, right? Very interesting. When we go back and revisit history and the heritage of special operations, and we're looking at through this lens of the four ages of soft, right? And so I've started with this first age, World War II. One of the insights we've kind of harvested from this historical retrospective, one of the major insights is when you're looking at what, okay, what defines the beginning of an age of special operations forces and what defines or gives you a good sense that, okay, that age is over and now we've made a threshold crossing and now we're into another age. What we found, and this is certainly true from the first age to the second, the second into the third, and the third somewhat ending now, more clear to us, a long ending, but more clear to us as an epilogue, as prologue to the fourth, frankly, with the manner of the ending of the military presence and operations in Afghanistan as one major milestone, not the only one, but a major milestone. What we found at each of those transition points is typically you've got a major shock, typically from without, and sometimes that outside of the nation state self triggering some minor shocks, in some cases, some major shocks as well, internally to the nation state itself. When you see the transition from the first age to the second age, we typically mark the a major beginning or a recognition that we're in a new age of soft, the second age, back to around 1961. In a very famous speech that President John F. Kennedy 
delivered at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the home of Army Special Operations, the Green Beret. And really, this speech really set the course of defining a change in the global character of geopolitical competition, the environment itself, and the need for a new type of force to contend with a new prominent rise of a, of a new form of warfare, irregular warfare, insurgency, guerrilla warfare. And this is one of the things that President John F. Kennedy talked about. And that speech is identified now in retrospect as the formal, the formal acknowledgement of new requirements driven by a change in the global security environment that now demands new app and different applications of force. Note I said that word different, new and different applications of force. And so a, a heavy emphasis, a vanguard emphasis on the use and utility of special operations forces, really in the frame of support to guerrilla warfare. That's where you see foreign internal defense as one of the classic mission sets of special operations forces. Again, going back to the colonial period, but getting an emphasis because of the nature of the environment of conduct, in how that shapes and informs the manner in which forces are employed to conduct operations in support of achieving the nation's interests under those changed conditions of competition, conflict, and war. And so that's really the marker for the second age. That second age, really from a special operations force standpoint, as well as a general purpose force, the conventional and the unconventional forces, you see somewhat, and I'm going to use, you know, we're talking in relative terms. You see a bit of what you're talking about, Andrew. You see a bit of a distancing within the armed services between the conventional forces that are focusing more on, during a Cold War period, prepare to fight and win America's conventional force-on-force machine-based wars, right? But at the same time, a lot of what we called, relatively speaking at the time, small wars and wars of low intensity, limited wars of low intensity conflict, irregular wars, what we call today gray zone wars and gray zone conflicts. You saw that, you saw the special operations forces really focus down those lanes where the conventional forces, the conventional services focused on keeping the nation prepared to fight and win in decisive ways against a potential great power direct confrontation, conflict, and war at the time with the Soviets. You spoke to this bifurcation. That really is, relatively speaking, what you see during the second age of special operations in leaning into the third. We'll get to that in a second. Because of the nature of the security environment itself and the nature of what we would call today the environment of strategic competition, you know, the concerns with great power conflict, force on force, but also Short of those kinds of wars, a whole lot of, relatively speaking, small wars taking place and irregular warfare, requiring irregular warfare techniques to, frankly, keep the Cold War cold, right? To keep the competition over interest, especially between so-called great powers at what we'll call a low boil, to manage the escalation ladder, to keep the amplitude of competition and conflict below the threshold of classic war and to keep with the metaphor of the Cold War, to keep the Cold War cold, or at least nothing more hot than warm. I mean, that's really interesting. I think it would be helpful if, is it possible to give us a brief synopsis of each of those three 
quarters that have came so far. I know what happened in the first quarter. That yeah. was Bill Donovan. That was the OSS. And that was World War II. Help us understand the second and third quarters a bit more, just kind of in a nutshell. Okay, so we've given you, you look at World War II and the types of operations we were doing, support to partisan forces, really an emphasis when you look at special operations forces and this soft IC relationship through the auspices of the Office of Strategic Services. You're doing overt and covert and clandestine operations, what we would call today below the threshold of real war, below the threshold of conflict. You're doing a lot of work in support of partisan resistance operations, so a lot of the famed types of operations that we're most recognized in Hollywood film and books of the time really emphasize that work in terms of special operations forces, doing things differently, oftentimes in very discreet manner, working with and through allies and partners on the ground in a support to national resilience and resistance operations. Shift to the second age. Probably one of the great iconic examples that gives you a visual sense of the kinds of operations and partnerships that special operations were doing, defining and emblematic of the second age would be the great special operations rescue efforts in Vietnam in the Sante crisis response and rescue attempt of American POWs in northern Vietnam, though not a success in terms of actually recovering prisoners of war, it's emblematic of the type of operations that were put together during the second age for the crisis response, crisis rescue, those types of operations. There's another, and you mentioned it earlier, another iconic illustration in what we've come to regard as Desert One, Operation Eagle Claw, but what's in the popular narrative regarded as Desert One, and that's the failed rescue attempt of the U.S. American hostages held by Iran and Tehran in 1979. So this is still the second age, sorry? That really defines the epilogue of the second age okay. and the prologue of from the second age into the third. Okay. And that's one of the insights that we are finding from, from this deep retrospective that this, these transitions oftentimes are identified by that last battle and or the first battle of the next age. And unfortunately, a lot of, of what comes with that, with those insights are change coming in the wake of failure to achieve full success, applying that particular previous age's tradecraft, tactics, techniques, something in terms of the competitive space has changed, something in terms of our internal organizational cultures and institutional designs perhaps have lagged in keeping up with those environmental changes, the changes of the competitor, the adversary, and even the enemy, that creates a say-do gap, right? We say that we need to do certain types of operations more jointly, more integrated in terms of cross-service integration, interagency integration, what we talk about today in terms of better integrated whole of governments, whole of society operations. We recognize the need for it. We say we are going to make those changes, but just like in business, there's a business lag. There's an institutional, organizational, cultural lag. We find that, unfortunately, the sad but undeniable markers marking the epilogue of one particular age of soft in this respect, in the beginning of a new age, more often than not comes in 
uh, less than fully prepared for and anticipated and desired and wanted and needed outcome from a previous set of missions or battles or the failure of the next first battle of the next age. Going back to the, the marker of the beginning of the third age, and really the beginning of the third age is, is the Holloway Commission in the wake of trying to figure out what went wrong that contributed to the tragedy of Desert One in Operation Eagle Claw, right? That gave birth to the congressional directed establishment of United States Special Operations Command, because one of the insights drawn from the Holloway Commission and other studies and commissions in its wake was that we, despite our best efforts, each service bringing their level best special operators together, we just did not know how to effectively and safely conduct what we call joint integrated operations. Despite bringing all the best to that mission and a very clear and purposeful mission. So the idea of, okay, what do we do to resolve that? And that really gave birth to the institutional changes at the top of that list being the establishment of United States Special Operations Command. That really gives us a cornerstone, a brick and mortar beginning of the third age. And then it gets kind of muddied in terms of where you start to identify the mile markers of the ending or the epilogue of the third age. One, I already mentioned, it may in fact be our conditioned state as we transition out of the 20-year U.S. war in of about four Afghanistan and what that portends going forward in terms of the fourth age of SOF. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Is there any memorable titles that you that you have given to the first, second, and third age? Is there this is the age of X or this is the age of Y or is it just more complicated than that? I mean, obviously it's more complicated, but I just wondered if you had. No, Andrew, that's a great question. I just got to be honest with you and your audience. It's not one that I've that's really been at the forefront of my mind until you just mentioned it, but it is now. As a promise, you know, maybe we can do a, a sequel to this. You know, I'd love to come back and tell you what we've learned now that I'm going to go and join my team and research this. I do find it interesting that I'm, you know, I'm going to have a hard time giving you markers. And even if I gave you markers, what I can tell you definitively is that there's not one single accepted term that would define the first age, the second, the third, and now what the fourth age might be. We are working on some for the fourth age. I was thinking about how long have we gone without a positive aims based labeling of the age we're in or the age in front of us? Since I've been an adult, my whole adult professional life has been living in a world and trying to grapple with a world that I understood and we all call the post-Cold War, right? And now post-9-11. We're probably going to be going forward talking about post-Afghanistan. We'll be at the 20-year mark here in about 18 months 
with Iraq. Two wars that are mile markers defining the waning decades of the third age of soft. But look at how we're labeling these things, right? It's post. It's a post-labeling. We haven't really taken charge. That might alone be might be emblematic of us really not taking a foresighting anticipatory control of our own future destinies in defining the next age as our nations and our community of, of nations' interest would want to define it. And in not doing so, we may unwittingly, unwantingly be allowing the titling of those ages to be determined by competitors, by adversaries, and by the environmental condition state in the landscape itself. As a professional public servant, as a former military officer, as a former soldier, as a soldier for life, as a member of this great august uh, special operations force community, that is just undersatisfying to say the least. And frankly, from a personal standpoint, completely unacceptable because it speaks to our lack of initiative and control of defining our own destinies going forward. So I'm going to take that on. That's about as much of a dance around your great question as I can give you. <laughs> I have my own ideas of labels of these past ages, uh -huh. but we don't have a collective. I would be wrong in even giving you my sense of those words because we don't have a collective understanding, a collective agreement on how we would a single label of what we would we would identify and how we define each of those ages. I think that fact alone is very there are a lot of lessons to gather and you know for our learning going forward just from that fact. When you were speaking there uh, and you mentioned AIMS, for some reason it reminded me a little bit of if you or any listeners have ever had like a bunch of different credit cards and you're you're like, I'll use the Amex for gas because <laughs> I get 3% and I'm going to use the Saver one for this because you get more money from them. And then yeah. you end up just having spending that you're not really keeping track of because it's spread across a number of different places. But if yes. you've got if you've got unity of purpose and you're keeping an eye on how much is going on, how much the outgoings are as a whole per month, then you've got you've got a much clearer idea of where you're headed. I think that is certainly true. Way too true, right? <laughs> For us from a from our individual household standpoint. I think metaphorically it's quite insightful. Because I would say bringing the metaphor to the realm of geopolitics that we're talking a little bit about through the, through the Special Operations Force lens, that equates to perhaps making the mistake of identifying and defining self more on task and use utility of force available and using that as a poor proxy of what should define, I'll say it normatively, should define who we are based on what we do and how we do it and where. Purpose. Governing purpose, right? But I would offer, consistent with your metaphor, Andrew, that what we really should be doing is thinking about mission in a complete reverse. We have to reverse, the, flip the script. And it should be not task and purpose, but it should be purpose and therefore the task. When we write a line it that way, we're right in line. We're better in, in alignment with what Clausewitz and the likes told us a long time ago. Do not divorce the military object from the political object. For if and when you do so, you will create something pointless and devoid of all sense. Wow, that's really fascinating. There's so much that I could pull, dig into there, but there are other things that I want to cover. Sure. So this is maybe something for some, over some beers at some point. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking, we're coming to the end of this third age of soft. 
I just wanted to take another look back at this age that's coming to an end or that we perceive as coming to an end. If you look at Afghanistan, from the Abbottabad raid for Osama bin Laden through to the horse soldiers in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, I mean, this is, if you looked at it from a certain perspective, you could say this is the golden age of soft. With special operations forces, is it like you can't out-train a bad diet? They've done everything they could feasibly and possibly do. This has been a golden age of soft, but you can't out-train a bad diet if there's no larger strategy or if the larger objectives are too ambitious, which is something that some people are saying at the moment. So I don't I don't want to get too much into politics. Yeah. But I just I just want to try to disaggregate the post nine eleven special operations forces and their integral role in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq from what has ultimately like played out and where we are at the moment. Does that make sense? That makes great sense, Andrew, and it's the fundamental critical question. So my first thing would be to say on this is exactly what I said in our last round of our questioning. Heed Clausewitz, right? Purpose first, purpose and then task. Now, let me just talk a little bit about maybe how special operations forces and, and maybe even more pointedly how soften the intelligence community relationship evolved over the last 20 years through this third age and why, right? And so just a few thoughts. First thing I would say is that the special operations force and the intelligence community relationship, it really grew exponentially over the last 20 years. And it grew in very particular purposeful context, right? It grew on the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan and in the larger purposing context of what we came to call the global war on terror, right? Terrorism provided a common purpose for special operations forces in the intelligence community, frankly, and the subsequent wars provided a space for the soft and IC relationship to grow. I think that's very important. There is a stage upon which the actors play, and the actors get their script and get their movement stage right, left, or center based on the condition state of the stage itself and the intent of the play. Weird metaphor, but I think it works. I think the result of the last 20 years, particularly when you look at the soft and IC relationship, has been uh, achieving a level of familiarity with each other that has been previously unseen. I guess with the golden age, I didn't, I guess I meant more in terms of, I wasn't comparing performances of the special operations across those different ages. I just meant because of the type of environment that they were operating in, they were more central. Whereas if you've got, say, huge armored divisions facing off in the West German plane, then of course, special operations are important and there's lots of things that they can do, but they're not as front and center as the first armored division or something like that. Your characterization right there, front and center. I get it. That's what you're getting at. I think I, undeniably, I mean, I think that's a given. I definitely agree with it. Certain last 20 years found special operations forces front and center in that respect. When you think about the codified and soft doctrine, the 10 to 12 classic mission sets, what we call core activities or core tasks, that John Quincy Adams thing of, you know, America does not go out seeking monsters to destroy, but sometimes monsters seek you out. And that's the story of 9-11 that we're having the rightful retrospectives of today And the retrospective is important as a retrospective, but it's vital in terms of an epilogue as prologue for going forward. And sometimes war comes. 
because the adversary, the competitor, the enemy brings it. The kinds of wars that this enemy brought to the forefront compelled and justified, purposed the utility and use of soft as a task to that purpose to be front and center, right? But I would say we have to be very careful to identify and define the full, comprehensive, holistic identity of United States Special Operations Forces, identity use and utility, just pegged on the front and center utility and use of the force for cause, for purposeful cause over the last 20 years. SOF has always been and always must be much more than counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, right? Even essentially necessarily about direct action, but not sufficiently only about direct action, right? And looking forward to the next age of SOF, do you see, just unpack a little bit more for us, where do you see the intelligence community, special operations forces, how do you see that relationship evolving or changing? I'll start my answer quite plainly and quite baldly. I think we've got to get back to some 21st century, fourth age form of the OSS model. I'm speaking for myself here. I'm the academic. I'm not speaking on behalf of official policy of US SOCOM or Department of Defense or the IC, certainly not. But as a scholar and as a practitioner, my take is that we've got to get back to some type of 21st century variation of the type of GMC, Joint Interagency Intergovernmental Multinational, and importantly, the C, commercial and civilian integration. What we're calling in here at JSAL as part of some of our research we're doing, integrated statecraft solutions, right? And the combinations of different elements of force, governmental, non-governmental, mil military, non-military, public-private, again, whole of governments, plural, not singular, whole of societies, plural, not singular, combinations. We have to prepare for this for overt actions in the cooperation and competition space well below the contact layer of the threshold of conflict and war, while at the same time being prepared to fight and win in a traditional sense in, when classic war and warfare comes. We have to be much more about integrated deterrence and the types of combinations of different complements of force for purposeful reasons to provide our nationhoods and community of nation with what I like to call soft as a rheostat, a temperature gauge, where we can do two things at once. We, in, in combination, in, as part of integrated statecraft solution sets, special operations forces can continue to provide what we've frankly always provided the nation in periods of so-called return of great power competition, which I don't think there's a return. I don't think great power competition ever went anywhere. It was just more to the peripheral over the last 20 years, but it never went away. So it's not a return we might be returning to it. But SOFT's always provided that rheostat, that temperature gauge that allows the nation to command and control the escalation and de-escalation ladder of deterrence. To put it more plain speak and more metaphorically correct to accurate to my metaphor of the rheostat, SOFT provides the nation with an opportunity to lower the amplitude of conflict and to lower the temp keep the temperature low. I just want to pick up on a, a few things there. 
just to take stock and kind of catch everyone up in case anyone's keeping up with the, the various twists and turns of our conversation, for the special operations forces, like how does it get decided which tool in the toolbox to use or which selection of tools? So, for example, with the Abattabad raid for Bin Laden, is it just a case of, oh, well, Admiral McRaven was in charge and guess who he picked? The Navy SEALs. You don't have to be a genius to work it out. Who selects? Because there's all of these tools that are very carefully thought through and particular skill sets that are developed. But who decides or how does it get decided which tool or which combination of tools to use? This is going to be an entirely unsatisfying answer. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it begins with the, the classic answer to a really great question like this, right? Well, Andrew, it depends, right? It depends. <laughs> A bit more serious, though, it depends, and we do it consistent, frankly, with, I don't want to over-strike this drum, but we do it consistently with the same way we do everything in our constitutional republic, democratic republic, right? We have a shared power shared through separate institutions for the proper checks and balances in the proper assurances of civilian control over, particularly when we're talking about military operations, civilian control over military affairs, and particularly military planning and military operations. Right From an operational standpoint, you obviously are seeing the military commanders and their staffs in the lead of determining the right tool for the right carpenter's effort in building, closing with to restore operations or closing with to destroy operations, right? Well, stick with me a little bit. We'll see how this carpenter's metaphor might go here. But who's the carpenter? Right, you got a lot of subcontractors under that under that general contractor, the carpenter. We're the tools. We're the experts subcontracting to figure out once the nation, once the carpenter themselves determine the purpose of the thing, the political object. Then, based on the political object, we provide options. We provide options. We bring different tools to the construction site to bring to bear for the construction of the house or you know, the school or whatever we're building. But what we're building is decided by civilian authority. I told you, I warned you it was going to be a little bit of a undersatisfying answer. But honestly, it may be undersatisfying. Under it may not be a sexy answer. That is the answer. And constitutionally, small c and big c, it's the right answer. It's the appropriate answer. So just for the example of the Abbottabad raid would... President Obama is obviously the ultimate decision maker. So, right. so would he be presented with, here's the, the various options we have. So indulge me for a second. We've got, sure. a, we've got a hammer, which is the Navy SEALs, or we've got an axe, which is Delta Force. And then President Obama would decide whether to use the axe or the, or the hammer. The options put together would be a Jim C set of options, particularly from the military. They're going to come to the president, the National Command Authority, as a joint I would call them joint integrated options, right? So how are we going to combine military, different military service combinations of force, joint force packages, and then passing that up and having these dialogues with our interagency and our intergovernmental and multinational partners of how we're going to integrate our joint force packages to provide flexible response and deterrent options to the command authority, how we're going to integrate that or put the, our put our options on the table for integration with 
State Department, Treasury, Commerce, et cetera, et cetera. And then that gets pulled together through, you know, on the DOD side through the joint staff and counterpart with, you know, up through channels to the National Security Council staff and through the series of interagency, different levels of interagency coordination committees and planning committees. You put combinations, you put comprehensive, what I'll call comprehensive joint combined readiness options in front of the deciders. And you give them the risk. You give them a, a risk calculation of each option comes with strengths and potential weaknesses, and you want to give those civilian deciders an accurate picture of the probable risk to mission, risk to strategy, and risk to the force. That's exactly what happens all the time. And it was certainly the process that happened in relation to the Abbottabad raid. One of the other ones that I was wondering was the size of the force, so 70,000. Give us a sense of how that has grown or shrank during those different ages. So, for example, in the post-9-11 era, have we seen it multiply and grow? What's the best way for it to move forward? Does it have to increase? And if it does increase, do you, do you run the risk? I remember reading in this book that some historians said that Napoleon, by having the Imperial Guard and by having the young, the middle and the old guard, he was drawing away all of the best people from the regular army components, which meant that they were weaker as a result because they didn't have the 10% of people that are the superstars that keep everything hanging together. So I just wonder at the most macro level, like help us understand the size of the special operations forces, how it's evolved and where it may be going in the future and some of the challenges and opportunities that may result from that. We might have to spend our, the rest of our natural lives talking and unpacking okay. this one, Andrew, because <laughs> really you've beautifully laid out the puzzle, which is what lies at the nexus of what we would call strategy and force planning, right? And force planning, force structure, what does the force, what must the force look like? It's complement of manning, right? Manning in a broad sense of, of the term. You know, how are you going to field the force with personnel and the training of that force and the equipping of that force, the stationing of that force? How are you going to modernize the force, right? How do we refit what we had coming out of the third age, refit it and repair it for the age to come, while at the same time adapting and modernizing the force in ways, particularly in an age of fourth technological revolution with emergent technology to upgrade, to innovate, to leap ahead in many respects of that force based on the, the condition state of the future, which is now. All those factors come into play, right? Force structure, what kinds of organizational designs and formations, headquartering organizations, where are you going to place? How are you going to prepare those formations? How are you going? Where are you going to posture those formations for presence? How are you going to? Are you going to strategically project those forces, or are you going to have elements, partial or predominant amounts of those forces already pre-staged at strategic locations globally? All those factors, right? Your elegant question is packed with complexity and complication. Let me try to break it down real quick, and again, the answer will be overly simplified just because we don't have the rest of our natural lives to, <laughs> to really dig deep into it. We certainly came out of the second age into the third age. And again, if we think about the attacks of 9-11 as certainly a triggering shock that made it clear, the world is different, right? What day is it today? It's September 10th, right? 
And so, yes, undeniably, the force, the special operations force grew in the aggregate over the last 20 years because of purposeful cause. And it was catching up to the new challenges of the environment and, the, and what the adversary brought to the table. Where are we today at this threshold crossing into the fourth age? We're at a place where we are, from a budget, a defense budget standpoint, understanding that what lies ahead of us is a much more complicated, complex, wicked, and compounded requirement to do more. But the budgetary imperatives of having to do a much bigger more with probably much, much less available, right? But the puzzle, the mathematics equation is what it is. We come out of this third age, probably looking at special operations force because we were, quote unquote, as you said earlier, Andrew, front and center because the nature of the adversary and what kind of fight the adversary brought to our table. Easy to look at in retrospect to special operations forces and saying, well, now that we're moving out of places like Afghanistan or even thinning down in places like Iraq, you know, it's easy to make the mistake of saying, well, the age of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency is over, right? And therefore, special operations forces might in that context, that misplaced context, be too soft is structured too large. I say, and again, I'm speaking as an academic here and from the university education activities standpoint, academic freedom, all that, you know, on the table. How will we know? How do we know? How do we know what the next 20, 30, 40 years requires? Because we rightly call where we are today in a, in a moment of strategic ambiguity and strategic inflection. You hedge, right? So I would say the true, real, honest answer is nobody knows. It's not a pivot. It's not a shift. Al-Qaeda still exists. Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State still exists. In fact, we see third and fourth metastasis of some of these organizations. The places that we leave, leave us with concerns of whether or not those places are going to, once again, as they go dark, in terms of, from an IC standpoint, less able to see and be sentinel to what's going on in those places and spaces, those places might be ripe petri dishes for the next metastasis you know, very similar to what's after Delta variant in terms of COVID-19. If we think about COVID-19, a global pandemic, as a form of insurgency, right? If where you're not looking, where you're not preventatively in a preventive health posture and preparedness, it may be likely, maybe probable that those become petri places that give rise to the next more dangerous variation of the original theme and thing. I say no different in terms of other more traditional real forms of irregular threats, insurgents, you know, the stuff of that give rise to insurgency and those manifestations further up the threat ladder. It's a heady question. It's the right question. We're at threshold crossings, it's easy to Again, put the caboose ahead of the engine and allow budget, quote unquote, realities to determine and be the poor proxy, in my view, of strategy. Again, we should be haunted right now by Clausewitz. First, determine what lies ahead. First, determine the kind of wars that you may embark upon or may be embarked upon you. 
No, I think it's a, a meaty question and it deserved a meaty answer and it's one that we could easily dig into so much more. <laughs> that one made my head hurt. <laughs> I mean, it's important to get this right. You know, the French army at the outbreak of the Second World War were they were large. They On paper, they looked very strong and powerful. It was Churchill that asked, where's the strategic reserve? And he just mumbled something about inferiority of numbers, inferiority <laughs> of men, inferiority of of strategy. So we've definitely got to beware our Maginot lines. Yeah, exactly. Right. We definitely have to beware of that. I will, Andrew, on that, you just triggered another thought. I will say this. I think one thing that is probably more clear at the strategic ambiguous moment, whatever this environment of conduct is ahead of us that we're living in today, tomorrow is now, right? This fourth age is now. I would offer it's one of compound threats. It's a compound security dilemma world environment. I think that's a different calculus. It changes. That's a different character of global geopolitical competition. It's a compound. If we think about the idea of a compounded threat environment, think of the positives that we love about compound interests, again, from the household level. We love it. Why do we love it? Because dollar cost average a little bit in, and it manifests exponential returns. Think of the dark side of that. And now you have a pretty good general layman's understanding and appreciation of what I'm getting at in terms of the character of today's and the future's geopolitical, the character of geopolitical competition globally is one of compound security threats and a compound driven by a compound security dilemma. <laughs> a lot of challenges ahead. I was just thinking when you were talking there as well, how do you, given the periods of technological settlement are exponentially smaller, how do you ensure that institutions are oxygenated with fresh ideas and new thinking when those institutions for centuries have been built on hierarchy and the person furthest up the food chain knows best. I mean, one example, a couple of years back, I had this fellowship at the Library of Congress and I had a bunch of interviews that I needed transcribed and I would never just give this to an intern, but it's the type of thing that I had to do. So I asked them to transcribe some interviews. They came back a few hours later and they'd found some AI program online put all the audio in there and came back with rough transcripts that they had marked up. I just bring that up because that's a digital native. That's them yeah. just think, you know, why would I sit down and transcribe that for hours? That's stupid. You know, let's find a way to do it with technology. So how do you bring those insights in when people's identity and rank and everything else is predicated on how could a corporal conceivably tell me how to do my job or whatever you know i've been i've been slightly flippant here but how do you ensure that those ideas come in and oxygenate and nourish and replenish the the organism is a difficult task because when it was let's line up and load the muskets or let's line up on the north german plane then it's that kind of hierarchy makes sense but when you're in the compound security environment you're talking about it kind of really doesn't in many ways yeah wow another uh Whew, talking about compound security limit, you just gave me one, Andrew, <laughs> with this question. We don't have to go anywhere with that. I was just a thought. No, I think I, I'm going to try to go in a few places with it because it's such an imperative question. And again, we are at one of those, I'm overusing the term, but I'm not going to apologize for it. We're at a threshold crossing. We're at a threshold moment. 
And at these particular moments is where this, this multi-generational, where you're trying to reconcile and find and create an equipoise, a balance between all these factors that are driving in the exact opposite direction of balance, right? They are disruptive. We live in a disrupt, a compound disruptive moment. You know, you intimated, Andrew, generational differences. We've got a fourth, just for me to, I'm going to try to walk into an answer to your question just by, you know, unpacking some of your, some of the, some of the assets of how you laid it out. We are amid a fourth age of special operations forces, as we are characterizing it, coming into collision, collision, intentionally saying it that way, with the fourth technological revolution. We're in this digital age, right? That demands a lot of different things faster. But the one thing I can say is everything's at acceleration, in a compounded acceleration. And now think about some of the factors that you intimated in your question, your great question. How do you reconcile that across at least three different generations of leader operators? We've got the Gen Zers coming into the force at the stage of accession and selection into the force and formations. You've got those that are the mid-career in the force that are of the millennial generation. And then you've got folks like me who are my age of generation who are still in uniform. You know, they call us a lost generation, the Gen Xers. You've still got the fast movers of my generation who are as part of the executive, the senior executives body leading the enterprise along with the remaining members of the boomer generation. So you've got at least three, three and a half, three, four generations, even the millennials not necessarily being digital natives, right? The Gen Zers, true to form digital natives. And then from there, all the way up to those who are the executive agents responsible for the decision-making and the owners of the risk, who may be, generally speaking, about as far from digital literate, much less further removed from being a digital native. How do you reconcile that? The easy wrong thing would be, you know, it's almost a such situation you got to flip the whole script, right? Now, the those who have no experience but are digital native, right? If you only looked at this and approached this through the lens of technology and what defining the solutions to the puzzles only through the technological lens, it could lead to some of those kind of perverse alternatives on the table that don't pass the fast test. They don't, they're not feasible, they're not acceptable, and not suitable, right? But they're, they become the obvious answer just looking at it through the technological lens. Now, the American way of, of all things, not the least of which the American way of peace and warfare, always has had a heavy technological imprint in culture, identity, and approach to it. So just like every other threshold moment, we look to technology for a solution. You know, case in point, COVID-19 and the great works that have been done in quick order with, with the vaccine regimens, right? What are we doing today? We are looking at technology, rightly so. And even if it wasn't right, it's part of our core DNA as America and maybe the wider West itself, more broadly speaking. In special operations, we are rightly and at an aggressive pace doing experimentation, innovation, and what we capture and call the hyper-enabled operator. You know, call it the hyper-tech-enabled operator, right? A body of at least eight different technological, fourth technological revolution, emergent technology areas that we are looking to experiment with, innovate with, and I'll call it sophisize, right? 
This is unintentionally turned into a Joe Rogan length podcast. I love it. I've been having a blast. <laughs> no, no, no apologies. This is fantastic. We've got the Joint Special Operations University. So do you have degrees or certificates or do you do research? Um, do you have a library? Help our listeners sure. understand that title. Great. Let me unpack a little bit here. So we're the, we're the JSAL, Joint Special Operations University. Again, we're 21 years old organizationally. We are a corporate university in architecture, hub and spoke, right? So Tampa Campus is one of our colleges. It's our main college making up the university, but just like a regular university, a university is composed of colleges, schools, schoolhouses, centers of excellence, and institutes, right? Same with the Joint Special Operations University. We spread, the university is a universe, global spanning, right? Because we include in that our allied and partner schoolhouses and education activities. We are... I would say in terms of our mission as an education activity, soft university, we are polytechnic in our purpose and orientation, our preparedness and our mission. What do I mean by polytechnic? It's all about applied learning, right? Our client is the leader operator force, current and future, right? And that's a client that are practitioners and they are all about the doing. And so we're largely a vocational polytechnic, polytechnical college or university in that respect. It's all about application. We teach to know and inform just like a regular college or university, give foundational information and foundational knowledge with all your readership. You know, we've all gone to high school and college to varying degrees. We're all familiar with that. But in addition to that, we're really the soft, unique and soft, peculiar piece of our education mission comes into play is really in that advanced level of the courses that we provide. And that's really about applied learning. So scenario, real world scenario-based learning, leveraging of tabletop exercises, ethical dilemma-driven practicum and practica exercises, wargaming, gaming in general, simulation. That's what our uh, heart and soul is really about. And then the third category is what we call teach to enable. And that's our educational support to the field, to the commanders in those units in the field, commanders and senior enlisted leaders being those that are responsible for training the force, training the force on what they need to do today to be better at their practical instrumental application of soft force for, for national purposes. Education reinforces that in, in our role as teach to enable. That's what that's all about. This has been a wonderful opportunity, Andrew, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Ike. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, all. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. <laughs>